Well, uh, I think we'll get started, if that's all right. Welcome. Uh, as I told you last week, and Fred has intimated in his emails this week, I was hoping the Lord would come so I wouldn't have to deal with this subject. But uh, in jest, I say that. But it is today, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting observation about how times change, I suppose, how culture changes. I mean, I'm 70 years old this year, so I've been in ministry a long time. I was ordained in the early 80s. Um, and when I first started, in, I, my minute, large ministry, major ministry, has been an academic ministry. But I've always been involved in the church, and I've preached in hundreds of churches all over the United States. But when I would be asked to do a marriage conference, and Peggy and I did uh, dozens of those, I think, and we started something when I was involved at Grace called Marriage Students Fellowship. And uh, we, we did that for probably 23 or 24 years. And among other things, because there were always about 20% of the student body was married. And we always uh, did married, uh, marriage weekends to enrich uh, the marriages of students. And even faculty and staff were invited home. Normally they didn't come on a regular basis. And the kinds of things we talked about uh, what I'm going to be talking about here. <clears throat> Today, to say the same things I've been saying for 30 years is now very provocative. And, I mean, I've been in situations where I taught this and people got walked out, especially those who are female, because they interpret what I'm saying, uh, or even when my, because Peggy and I used to do these together, as being... Um, saying something that shows women are inferior and all you want to do is keep them barefoot and pregnant. And that is not what I'm teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that is not what the message of marriage is in, in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. So with all that in mind, uh, if you are really upset with what I'm teaching, don't be afraid to get up and leave. I'll never speak to you again, but no. in, in all seriousness, I mean, I, I, if you really uh, push back on this, feel free to do that. So I've given you uh, a handout here that includes three articles that I wrote uh, in the late 90s. And uh, the one is on the husband. The second one is on the wife. I tell you, that's a noble wife. And then the third one is on uh, generally the marriage concept in the Bible uh, in general. So, I mean, we're not going to read this. I'm not going to read this to you. That's if you don't really want it, use it to light your fire this winter. But otherwise, I'm giving you a resource that uh, summarizes what I think is the biblical view of marriage. So what I'd like to do is start, and if you look at the chart, um, that's at the, the uh, first page of the handout. I hope there are some left over because I ran off what I thought were a maximum number of people that would show up. Um, is start with Ephesians 5.32. Now on the board, what I've done, it's a degree replicated what's on your first sheet. And in the middle of the triangle up here, I've put the three major New Testament references to the biblical idea of marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 32. Colossians chapter 3, it's only two verses, it's a summary. Uh, verse 18 and 19. And uh, we are studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 
the Bible presents a concept of marriage that I think is uh, summarized in one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.32. So that's why I've called this an Ephesians 5.32 marriage. Now, if you, uh, if you want to turn to it, you can, because we're in First Peter, but we're going to be looking at um, a number of references, but I'm going to try to summarize all of these with this chart, and I've kept it blank, so if you want to write anything on the chart, you certainly can. That's why I gave it to you. But at the end of Paul's discussion in Ephesians chapter 5, which is the longest discourse uh, in the New Testament on what a God-honoring marriage looks like, he says, this is Paul writing, this mystery is great. And again, at the end of what he's describing are the respective roles of the husband and the wife in the marriage. He says, this mystery is great. But I am speaking of Christ in the church. Years ago, decades ago, when I first studied that to teach it, I looked at that verse and I said, what? Now, I didn't quite respond like that, but I'm a little bit of hyperbole. But I thought, what? What? He's been talking about the husband and the wife and their relationship and their respective roles, and he brings up Christ in the church? And you, you have to think about that for a minute, but the, when you think about it in that context, it becomes clear what he's saying. Because if we don't have time to study that Ephesians 5 passage, I'm going to just try to summarize it. But he talks about the respective roles of the husband and the wife in the marriage. And each person, the husband and the wife, as he describes their role, he relates it to, to that person's relationship to Jesus Christ. So he says to the husband, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Serve your wife. I'm paraphrasing. But serve your wife as Christ served you. Wives, be in submission to your husband as you are to Christ. Show the same respect and honor to your husband as you do to Christ. And again, that's the summary of what he's saying. And so at the end he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. And so when you look at a verse like that, you you come to understand something that our culture totally, totally rejects. And it is, marriage is a supernatural institution. It's the first institution God created. God created three major institutions. Family, marriage and family, the state, and the church. And each one has stewardship responsibility before God. And as we've talked in this section that we're in in 1 Peter, uh, I've mentioned this a couple times, our God is a God of order. Our God is a God who institutes authority to maintain that order. You see that in the government, you see that in the church, and so on. And so, because God is like that, he assigns primary responsibility in each institution he creates to maintain that. And, I mean, today, I mean, it's just, it's almost, uh, I can hardly believe that, but it is where we are in a culture. For me, then, to say this sentence, 
and God assigns primary responsibility to the husband. I've just said something that people will throw things at me, send me hate me emails, and say, I mean, just horrible. I've, I've been called all kinds of names when you teach something like that. But that is the clear teaching of the, these passages. And it's just, you get so much pushback because they're not trying to understand what the New Testament is saying. There's just that visceral, impulsive response. You're making me inferior. That is not what this is teaching. So, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm doing a lot of background, laying some foundation and background review of things that are in the Bible, but let's just be reminded of something as well, and I think we've said, talked about this before. The issue, and let's just confine it to marriage, the issue is not the equality of the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. That's stipulated in the Bible. The man and the woman, the husband and the wife, are equal before God. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. My wife is not more or less in the image of God than I am. I am not more in the image of God because I'm a man than she is. We're equally, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. So whatever that means, and that is something that needs to be explained, but whatever the image of God means, we're equal. Secondly, in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, again at the conclusion of another important topic, but anyway, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, Gentile slave. What's he saying? In Christ, you're equal. If you put it the way we often put it in North American evangelicalism, I'm not more saved than my wife or she than me. We're equally at the cross the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, we're in Christ, equally at, in Christ. There's, it's not a, there's not a hierarchy of people that are more saved. No, it's, we're equal at the cross. Could you give us that verse in Genesis Genesis 1, 26, and 27. The image of God. And in Galatians 3, 28. And then a verse that will, well, I, we probably won't get to it today because of all I want to try to do here, but in 1 Peter 3, 7, we're joint heirs with Christ. Whatever that means, whatever all that will involve, we're joint heirs with Christ. So, you know, we don't, these things don't occur anymore, but I used to be in oh, probably about 12 or 13 of them debates or discussions or panel discussions on with people who are not necessarily believers on the, the, the uh, on, on marriage and men and women and husbands and wives in marriage and when I would I was always a token evangelical there were always lots of others but feminists and so on but I would always I would start my, my talk and I would always say I he, I'm here to first of all stipulate equality and I would review what I just mentioned. And I would always, you know, they didn't expect me to say that. And rarely did I ever, ever catch anybody by surprise with what I said. But that was always something that they didn't expect that. Because the, the Bible is stating the issue is not equality. The issue is role responsibilities. And what are those role responsibilities? 
And so when we study Ephesians 5, 22 and following, when we study Colossians 3, 18 and 19, when we study 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, the issue, is, and, and I cannot say this often enough, so I'll probably say it another four or five times, but I'll say it here again. The issue is not equality. Whatever Paul is, or Peter, is, are the two authors of these areas, whatever they're saying, they're not saying one is more equal or more valuable or more important than the other. That's not what they're talking about. They're trying to define and articulate the role responsibilities within this institution, that's what we're talking about here, of marriage. If you go and study, especially here you would study First, Second, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you would study the different role responsibilities in the church. You know, there are leaders, there are elders, deacons, you know, there, all those things need to be discussed. And there are, there are responsibilities that the older have to the younger, and their, their role responsibilities in men and women in the church. And so if you can get people, and you often can't even do that, but if you get people to understand and at least agree that we're not talking about equality issues here, that one is better than the other, one is more superior than the other, or one is, what would be another, greater than the other, that's not what it's talking about. It's stipulating equality, but it's defining what God has defined as the role responsibilities. And if you want an Ephesians 5.32 marriage, where your, your marriage is an archetype, uh, a paradigm, a metaphor of how Christ relates to the church and vice versa, then you've got to understand this. That's why, and I, I'm pretty sure you all would agree with this, marriage is supernatural. And if Jesus Christ is not in the marriage, and the triangle isn't functioning, that marriage is not going to be all that God wants it to be, and it, it could be a marriage that's not going to make it. And it is, an, it is an enormous challenge for fallen people, fallen, broken people who are sinners, to function in a marriage the way God wants them to function. And if you're not willing to understand it and live in dependence upon the Lord to do it, it's never going to be what the Lord wants it to be. And finally, and I think you would agree with this too, this, what I want to try to paint this morning, this picture of marriage as God paints it is thoroughly countercultural in 2017. I mean, it is thoroughly counter. You know what I mean by countercultural? Culture's going one way, you're going the other. I, I mean, it, it really is. <laughs> By definition, because of what the Supreme Court has ruled and how you can define marriage, how insurance companies define marriage, how the government defines marriage, how many corporations define marriage, how insurance policy insurance companies that write policies define marriage. They're not defining marriage the way the Bible defines it. And so... What we're, what we're we're presenting here, and what I tried to summarize in those three little articles, is just, it is, it is probably one of the greatest examples today in 2017 of how thoroughly countercultural the Church of Jesus Christ really is. It is proposing, defending, and trying to live out something that the culture, generally speaking, doesn't accept. 
I was, uh, who did I, oh, Rob, I guess, who did I come up in the elevator with? Rob, if you look at Rob's hat, it's a great hat. Would you show them your hat? <laughs> mm. oh, I didn't know you had to go to Alaska to get it. I just. <clears throat> this, Jim, would you read? I don't want, it doesn't have to be asked around. What's it say, Joel? When all else fail, fails, read the instructions. Yeah. And uh, when I saw that and, and read it, it reminded me of a television program which I used to enjoy watching, uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor. I forget, what was it called? Uh, well, anyway, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so two of you do. But anyway, it, I used to, it, and if you really, if you go back, it's not on anymore, but if you go, ever go back or have a chance to look at some old ones, what you see here is this uh, guy, Tim, who's a Toolman guy, uh, well, he's got a program. Doesn't he have a TV program on, on tools or something? Yeah, yeah. But and then he and he's married to a to a, a gal named Jill. And one of the, one of the major themes of that program is Tim has no clue how to be a husband, and Jill's understanding of what her role and his role in the marriage should be they are antithetical. I mean, you know. And Tim is just constantly struggling with how do I be a husband. And he gets all his advice from the next-door neighbor who quotes Buddha and Lao Tzu and Confucius and all these other people and somehow gets Tim through every day that he's blowing up his marriage with Jill. But it illustrates, and I used to, when I would watch that, I used to say to myself and to my wife, you know, honey, this program is a perfect metaphor for where our culture is. You have two people that get married and they're totally different, because I'm sure you realize this. A man and a woman are totally different. You do know that, right? I mean, just totally different. You know, physically, uh, the, the right brain, left brain uh, functions, the, the genitals, the muscles. I mean, it's just totally different people, physically and then emotionally and psychologically. I mean, when Peggy and I, she doesn't do it anymore since she got sick, but this time of year, we'd go out and rake leaves together. And even when the kids, they would, it'd be a big point. But, you know, my focus on raking leaves is totally different to hers. Do you know what I mean? Peggy, she's out. She's enjoying the lovely fall day, enjoying, you know, getting up leaves. So, you know, if my, I'm on a mission. Every leaf in that yard has to be in that recycle bag. But for Peggy, it doesn't matter if they're not all in there. They're going to blow around anyway. But, you know, do you know what? A man is on a mission. And it's, it's a, a singular focus. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman doesn't have that, but a woman has a much different perspective. It's like going shopping. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to me, and again, maybe you guys are different, but to me, shopping is I know exactly what I want, I know where it is, I'm going to go in, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to leave and get on to something more important. Right. I've only gone shopping for a dress with, for my wife one time in my life. <laughs> only once. <laughs> You're a, you're a quick learner. <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was really, this is a long time, but it was amazing. This is when Crossroads was still a functioning mall. But we, I think we started at Yonkers. And that, when Yonkers had a store there. And it was a lovely dress. And I thought, oh, praise the Lord, she's going to buy it, and then we can go on something else. So she you know, tried it on. She tried about three or four other ones on. Uh, and she said, now I want to go to Dillard's. And I said, Dillard's? You really like this? No, I want to go to Dillard's. Okay, so we went to Dillard's. So uh, then we went to West Roads and three or four other shops there. And you know what happened? 
Then in the Westroads, we stopped and got coffee. And then we came back to Yonkers at Crossroads and bought the first dress we saw. Because a man looks at something like that as a focused, singular mission, and, and the event is what is important to us. A woman, it's the whole process that's involved in doing it. It's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's the way God made us. It's not that's right or wrong or bad or evil. And Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 3, 7, men, seek to understand your wives. That's part of understanding. And if you don't come to understand that, you are going to have the most frustrating relationship conceivable in the human race. Because you're never, you're never going to see things the same way. Never. And so it's just understanding that. And understanding and appreciating she is really bringing something to my life that I need to pay attention to. Enjoy the process as well as the hunt. Metaphor, you know, you're hunting for a dress, you find it, let's buy it, let's shoot it, let's shoot the hog and get on to something else, you know. But I mean, it's just, it's just, it's the, it's the way we are. And there's nothing wrong with that. So how do we make this work? I haven't said anything biblical. How can possibly be a question? I'm just kidding. I have a question on something you mentioned earlier, and I don't want to generate a bunny trail at all. So please feel free to, um, you can do a one one word answer or whatever is fine. But I did want to get your input on. Um, so when you when you mentioned earlier about equality for men and women, um, and the big movement today is obviously to kind of uh, neutralize any gender, um, even references to God. Do we refer to him as he? Um, you know those types of things. Could you just comment if there's anything you have to say on? I guess the subject of equality when God seems to reveal Himself as masculine, as and Jesus obviously came in the form of a man, and um, and there's obviously a lot of pushback now with that. And just is, is there anything there that um, I'm not going to say the word in, in, inequality, but there seems to be God does um, reference Himself as a as a man, and so it's just curious if you had any thoughts on that subject without getting into a big bunny trail on that whole thing well it is uh the pronouns of the bible are important in some circles today uh, because of the, the the fact that it's a gender issue um, but i think there are, there are two or three things that are important number one is and and this you 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 just have to in a sense accept this but when God uh, inspired his word through his spirit, he chose to reveal himself through and, and with a male pronoun. And that Jesus Christ in the incarnation, God chose that he would be a male. Second thing is that one of the most precious dimensions of the Christian faith is that we have the right to call God our Father. We're instructed to pray to him in that way and so on. And the whole concept of father is, you know, is not the authoritarian, dictatorial father who hammers kids into submission or hammers his wife into submission. It's a caring, loving father who always has the interests of his children at, at, at heart. And that, such that, and this would be the third comment, such that Jesus does this in Mark 14, and Paul encourages us to do it in Galatians 4 and Romans 8, we can talk to God as our Heavenly Father at a level of intimacy such that we call him Abba, which is a 
Hebrew, or an Aramaic term, but anyway, that's a term of, of intimacy and relational fellowship. Uh, daddy, it might be a loose translation of it. And th- that, is, that is part of, again, how God has chosen to do it, but to reveal himself and to encourage us then to look at him as our heavenly father who cares for us, who has our best interest at heart and so on, um, is, is supposed to be understood as positively. But, I mean, I've, I had, I'm not a therapist, but I've done some pastoral counseling. So I've had people in my office over the years, or even at my church right now, there's one person. Their, their whole image of father is, is, is a horrible image. Their father was terrible, just, a, just an awful father. And so it's very hard to then take that horrible concept and make it applicable to God as my father. So you, when, when that is addressed in our culture, t- tragically, there is an ideological bent to all that that turns something that should be understood positively, a caring, loving father who always has our best interests at heart into something that is extremely prejudicial and negative. And that's, to me, this is an illustration of, of the family concept. You almost have to get into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ to really understand this. Because outside of that, in the, the kind of the feminist, feminization of our culture and all that has happened with, with the ideological uh, assumptions that go with that, particularly for someone who's a rabid feminist, it is very, very difficult to turn that into a positive for them. I mean, I don't know how else to answer your question, because that's really, God has chosen to do it this way. Yeah. We can push back and say, why did he do that? He's saying something about the value of me as a person because I'm a woman. That is not what he's doing there. But tragically, that is, in some circles, that is what has happened to what is a beautiful concept. God is Father. J.R. Packer, in his lovely little book, Knowing God, has a, chat, a little section on Father. God is Father. He said that is one of the most precious results of coming to faith in Christ. That now you're in the family of God and you can talk to God, look at God, understand God as your Heavenly Father who cares for you. And, you know, like I said, up until a couple decades ago, that was something you could comfortably talk about. Now it's, it's you got to get over the ideology <laughs> and to the truth. But, uh, Anyway, that's the best I can do at responding to your question. Is that mine? Must be. Yeah, that's mine. My daughter-in-law is sending me pictures on WhatsApp of my grandson, so you aren't interested. I'm terribly interested, but I'll turn it off. Now, uh, oh my goodness, it's almost a quarter after 12. Um, let's put this on fast forward. Now, that's another way of me saying, I don't want you to ask any questions. Please let me do this. So I want to do all this in one hour, now half hour. But and simply because, uh, I mean, I don't want to not finish this. I have to come back. I want to build on it next week uh, as we get into this. So if you'll let me just talk a little bit and um, summarize a little bit this, and, and then we'll... Um,
hopefully we'll be able to go to the first Peter material. Now again, we're just some of the assumptions here, presuppositions that we approach is the issue is inequality. That's not the issue. The issue is the issue of roles. What are the roles in a marriage? That is an Ephesians 5.32 marriage. Uh, a, a marriage that's supernatural that when people see it, when they see it lived out, they see something that can only be explained by God doing something supernatural. And the reference point is always how Jesus relates to his church and vice versa. So let's start with the husband, okay? Now, what I'm going to do here, what I'm talking about is the husband and wife, so the you know, respective hours, how they relate to one another. What are the role responsibilities? All right, we'll just say, first is love. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The Greek word there is agape. And so what is, it, what is he saying? As, as Jesus loves the church, as he agapes the church, the husband is to love his wife. Now, what's, what's the uh, primary example or evidence of Christ's love for the church? What did he do for the church? He died for the church. He went to the cross and bore all the shame and, and suffering and death as a substitutionary death and suffering, etc., for the church. That's the extent of his love. So it's it's not the, the term there is not an erotic love, and it, that isn't that that doesn't play a role in this. Sexual intimacy is a very important part of this relationship, but the term is agape. It's an other-centered, self-sacrificial love. And then, secondly, I'm going to use he is to serve his wife and serve as a leader of his home. Now, the term that Paul uses there is head. That the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is head of the church. So, the Greek word there is kephale. We get our word cephalic for that from that, hydrocephalic, so it has to do with the head. But obviously, the idea is of, of as, as Christ is head of the church, He's a leader of the church. What kind of leader is Jesus of the church? An authoritarian? A dictator? Serving. He serves. What's the best example of Jesus serving as he leads? The washing of the disciples' feet in John 13. That's the perfect illustration. Because he says to them, what you have seen me do is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to lead. When I was inaugurated as president, um, which a long time ago, but the theme of my inauguration was to lead is to serve, to serve is to lead. Because I had redone the mission statement of grace as we seek to develop servant leaders for the home, the church, and the world through excellence and biblically integrated education, life change, and a personal discipling environment, all for the glory of God. I just read the mission statement of the school that I used to lead. But I say all that because what we were trying to do is replicate the servant leadership model that is not only in the home, but it's in the church, and it's in the world. Simon Greenleaf has set up a center called the Simon Greenleaf Le uh, Servant Leadership Institute. Now, they're not Christians. They're not evangelicals. 
If you look at Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great, he talks about leadership in the great companies, what makes companies great. He talks about five levels of leadership, and level five leadership is servant leadership. So the world that doesn't give a hoot about Christianity is recognizing the dynamic of, of meaningful leadership that affects meaningful positive change is leaders who serve. Not just bark orders and force everybody to fall in line and hammers, hammers people who don't fall in line. You lead by doing. You lead by showing. You lead by modeling. As well as obviously casting vision and giving directions and so on. That's how a husband leads. So you put these two together, loving as Christ loves the church, being head, serving, leading as Christ served, leads as head of the church. Oh my goodness. You see something. No man wants to do this. No man intuitively, instinctively wants to do that. By that, you understand what I mean? Lead and serve that way. That's, that's not a man. A man does not intuitively want to do it that way. I know it's right, do it. I have more testosterone than you do. I'm stronger than you are, do it. And if you don't do it, I'm going to hammer you into submission. Which is why in the history of marriage, for 5,000 recorded years of history, we have so much evidence of men abusing their wives. It's not just in the United States of America in 2017. It's all through history. I can share ancient Sumerian texts, 3000 BC, where husbands were doing that. Rome, during the empire period, was known for men abusing their wives. That's how you hammered them into leadership. That's why what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 is so thoroughly countercultural. And it's that way today. So, so I, when, when you start to understand that, you start to understand why Ephesians 5.32 marriage is a man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church who leads, serving as he leads ahead. Because you see what the Bible does, I can show four places in the Bible where that's true. God assigns primary responsibility for leadership to the husband. I think the best example of that is you go to Galatians, Genesis chapter 3, and Satan is, is coming into the garden and, and tempts Eve and, and so on. Um, Bible says Eve is deceived. What does it say about Adam? He wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. And sometimes you get the picture that when the serpent is there tempting Eve, that, that uh, you know, Adam is in the south 40 miles away, you know, doing corn or wheat or something. No, he's right next to Eve. Instead of yelling at her, don't you dare touch that. God told me and I told you and we are covenant together. We'll not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what we're... And that's why when we go to Romans 5, where God talks about how sin enters the human race, Eve is not even mentioned. But in chapter 5, verse 12, Adam. It is through Adam that sin enters. So to whom did God give primary responsibility for the fall of the human race? Adam. Now, see, I'm saying all that because it's unpopular today. It's not 
nice for many people to hear, but a loving servant, husband, is the model for God-honoring, spirit-inspired, Jesus-centered husband. Now, the wife. Paul and Peter use this word. I'll make it a noun, submission, or verb to submit. Now that really needs to be defined because today in 2017, there is simply no way you can make that a positive. Just the word is immediately understood negatively. It shouldn't be. The term submission strongly has this idea that inclination to follow and that disposition to yield to a loving servant. Now, you're all looking at me as if I'm speaking Hebrew or something. <laughs> but it's that, 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 that inclination to follow, that disposition to yield to a servant leader. You see, if your husband is loving her as Christ loved the church and serving her as head, like Jesus is head of the church, it's relatively easy to have that inclination to follow the disposition to yield. But what if her husband is not like that? That's what Peter is talking. Peter, more than Paul in, in, in Ephesians or Colossians, Peter, more than Paul, addresses what a woman is to do in a relationship with her husband is not doing it. But this is this is an incredibly provocative thing to say today, but let's go back to how Paul puts it in both Ephesians and Colossians. She's to have that inclination to follow and that disposition to follow her husband as she has that inclination to follow and disposition to yield to Jesus. That's what Paul says. The analogical comparison is as you follow Jesus, you follow your husband. Because in God's economy of things, he has primary responsibility. And if the family goes south, God holds the father responsible first. If things are deteriorating, God holds the father, the husband, responsible first. And so, um, in, in that same passage in Ephesians, you have the word respect as well. And I am not sure that's difficult, but again, in 2017, that's very provocative. But to respect that position, and again, in the culture and civilization to which Paul is speaking this in the first century, women... That was not something that was done. It was grudging uh, because women were just treated, uh, unless you were a very wealthy, upper-class Roman woman, which there weren't that many. But for the most part, it was a very, um, very difficult thing to say. Now today, when you go to Islam, just some, uh, you know, broadly speaking, 
Islam has this, enforced in Sharia law. Islam does not have this. You know what I'm saying? This is not what Islam says the husband's to do. But Islam says this is what the wife is to do. And you symbolize that in the extreme radical Islamic societies with the burqa. And, and the real extreme rat burqa were all is seen as the mouth in public. Follow me? So Islam has this. Hinduism has this. But it doesn't have this. But this is not going to be Ephesians 5.32 unless there's this. Well, it, it, it can be, yes, if she dishonors him. And I'm sure you know this, uh, in many Muslim societies today, all a husband has to say is, he can start over the phone, he can text her, he can email her, I divorce you. And she has absolutely nothing. He's not obligated to take care of her. She can't sue. Now that's changing in a number of the Islamic societies. But, I mean, I, I'm not trying to just pick on Islam, but we're a little more familiar with that than we used to be because of 9-11. But I'm doing that just in contrast, because many worldviews especially like Hinduism, Islam, I'm thinking more than anything, even to some extent Confucian ethical teaching has this, but does not have this. And if you only have this and not this, then what you are opening the society to is abuse uh, of the wife, which is certainly what's true in, in, in Hinduism and in Islamic societies, or at least the more traditional ones. And it's ugly. I mean, you, I'm sure you... When William Carey first went to Italy, uh, to India in the late 1700s, what he observed is a man dies and his wife, because she's duty-bound to do, throws herself in the funeral pyre. That's her final act of submission to her husband. She dies with him, throws herself on the fire, because in Hinduism they burn the body. I'm saying that because these radical extensions of you have this, but not this. And see, that's why Christ comes into a marriage and Christ begins to reshape the husband's whole perspective about life, but particularly his whole perspective about his wife. How do I look at my wife? How do I see my wife? First thing, Jim, you see your wife as a complete equal to you. She's equal in the image of God. She's equal at the cross. She's equal as a joint heir. But Jim, you have a responsibility now to Peggy. You must love her as Christ loved the church. And so... What does that mean? Peter, in verse 7 of chapter 3 that we're studying now, is going to say, Jim, one of your major obligations is seek to understand your wife. Now, some of you, I mean, I, I, this May I'll be married to Peggy uh, 49 years. But, you know, that's a long time. You know, I still haven't figured her out. I still haven't. I mean, we've been through two kids together. We've been through, in the early 10, almost 11 years of our marriage, all the issues of infertility, which were really a struggle. And then we were able to adopt the most beautiful, talented, gifted, smart, good-looking kids God's ever created. 
and I'll show you my grandson. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm being humorous here. But so we went through that, and then and we went through all the you know just the years of struggling, raising kids, and all the stuff when you get into the disease of adolescence. You know what I mean? And then I've been through menopause with her, which and some of you. That's that is a really interesting thing to go through. That really is, you know, the mood swings, the heat flashes. I mean, just all those wonderful things. And now, you know, we're kind of in a sort of semi-retirement. I'll never forget when I uh, made the decision to retire. About the third question out of Peggy's, Peggy's mouth was, "Now, so you're going to be home every day then?" That was not a positive question. I mean, it really wasn't. You know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't, I was to understand that not as a positive, but now remember, this is my territory. Now, you're going to still have your car, aren't you? You know, all these things, which were great questions. And Ephesians 5.32 marriage takes a lot of work and a lot of dependence on Christ. And what will make it far more difficult is if your spouse doesn't see it this way. And that's what's really, really difficult. And there are so many marriages where one partner is really serious and the other partner isn't. One partner may, both may know the Lord, but the one partner is serious about cultivating an intimate relationship with the Lord. The other really isn't. So Ephesians 5.32 and what Paul and Peter are talking about is the ideal, but the ideal is only possible through Christ. But as we've talked many, many times, God never lowers the bar. He just gives us the resources to reach the bar. And there are many, 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 and perhaps even around this table, there are many, many examples where the marriage didn't work. Because one of the partners, it, you just could not make it work. And, uh, and tragically, a divorce results. Now, there's more I want to say about this. Uh, but, um, and we're still in good time. But in the little articles that I attach to the chart, I try to give you, um, quoting a few other people, but for the most part, what all of these passages together teach us about the respective roles. And it's, if you want to read them, fine. If you don't, like I said, use them to light your fire this winter when it gets cold. So let me stop for a minute and see if you have any questions about, about this. You know, Rob. Um, notice the way you read, you focused on 532 and gave us the reading of 522 to 32. Is there a reason you left out verse 33? Well, no. I, I should have. Yes, yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, okay. I was working toward 33. I thought, I thought maybe the, the parent <coughs> goes through 33. Yes, thank you. He gets it all kinds of reasons. Yeah. <clears throat> so there are no questions? That's really good. Just a comment. Yeah. Uh, in matrimonial law, I mean, as far as our laws are concerned, traditionally, the judge gives the husband responsibility, you know, for supporting either the wife or the family. Mm -hmm. But the wife would get custody because mm -hmm. she was better able, in the view of the law, I guess. That's changing a little bit. It now. is changing. There's more joint custody. Right. 
and income is looked at more right. know, by the law. I just in relation to all this, um, I don't not legal rather than cultural, maybe. Well, I think you know if you think just of America, American law is really really rooted in English law, which is really rooted in Roman and Judeo-Christian law. English law, Blackstone commentary, all that stuff, is a synthesis of Judeo-Christian law and Roman law. Rome, Rome and its empire instituted the concept of rule of law. And regardless of how you look at it, the one thing Rome did to the Mediterranean world was bring order to that world. Not being granted, it was imposed order, it was forced, Roman legions were everywhere, but they set up jurisprudence, they set up due process. One of the things when you study the trials of Jesus, the trials of Jesus, he had, there were six trials, three Jewish and three Roman, two with Pontius Pilate, one Herod Antipas. Not one of them, not one of them followed the law. That's why Jesus was unjustly accused of sedition, which is what Rome executed him for, and he was un, it, they did not follow. And it's really, really interesting, and this is just the result of, of my study when I used to teach that. Rome had codified law. There was a due process procedure you were supposed to follow because Rome wanted to bring order to the Mediterranean world. And so that's a po very positive concept, and it's positive only if it's administered fairly. <laughs> but, the, I mean, the point I'm making is the beauty, the beauty of Judeo-Christian synthesized with the concept of rule of law is you have then legislatively and legally instituted the principles that are in God's revelation. That God holds the man primarily responsible. Well, law, until, again, as John correctly said, until fairly recently, that's all really changing. And not because a lot of other things are changing, but... Um, that's one of the really interesting things to study about the evolution, uh, I don't mean biological, I just mean over time, the evolution of law and, and how, how we understand due process and, and procedures and so on. That's all very, very positive. But as you more and more lose the ethical moorings of law, which is where I think we are in American civilization today, we are a civilization firmly anchored in midair. We are. We have. We just have no basis, no foundation for what we do, because that foundation is in flux. Is there, is there anything else about this that you'd want to ask or want me to clarify? Because in a sense, and I think it would be right to say it this way, in a sense, Peter assumes that you sort of know this. Because he's looking at it from just a little bit of a different vantage point, particularly when it comes to the responsibilities of the woman in the first six verses of chapter 3. Jim, please. I guess my comment is that the roles set up for the husband are very hard. They're challenging to do. I mean, it might be challenging for a wife to submit, but it's also sometimes challenging to love and to lead and to serve. So, um, I mean, it's not an easy assignment. God's given no, it isn't. In this 
And Jim, don't you just making the observation, because even when you work for this company, but in the other companies you work for, you don't you see the evidence pretty much throughout the culture of men just don't want to do this? And actively, I mean, not only not wanting to do it, but sometimes actively rebelling against it. Mm-hmm. And even if they get serious about wanting to do it, they don't know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. I'll just throw up my hands as I want to. And it's, it's, you know, we, there are just so many ways to look at this. The tragedy, the tragedy of our culture in so many ways. And that's why I like that program that Tim what was his name? Tim Allen. Tim Allen starred in. He, he just reflected the confusion of our culture. Tim loved his wife, but he didn't know how to, he didn't know how to do this. And I mean, they never quoted Bible verses on the program. But he just, he didn't know, how do I love Jill? I don't know how to do it. Because Tim was a typical man, incredibly selfish, thoroughly self-centered. And when it came to his cars and his tools, thoroughly self-indulgent. And so you put those three things together, you're pouring gasoline on a relationship. And then you had Jill, who's a you know early proto-feminist, and all the things that you know were part of her. And you know you just you, the, the story after story after story, virtually every night it was on was these two people love each other, but they don't know how to they don't know how to do it. And so there goes some near eastern pantheist next door named Wilson, and he's always telling them how to do it. That is a little bit cynical there, but I mean, in a sense, that's really where, and that's why that, to me, that's why that show was so appealing. Because almost everybody watching it, that's exactly where I am. I'm a NASCAR guy that loves my cars and loves my tools and go, loves hunting and loves playing golf. And oh, yeah, I am married. Now, what does that mean? How do I fit her into this? You know, I, and then kids come along. Huh? We don't all have to. And, and, and the, your next door neighbor who's a Near Eastern pantheist, please don't go to him for your counsel because, anyway. Fred. So, God, in his omniscience, in his ever knowing, what was he thinking when he made a woman? <laughs> well, the answer to that is in Genesis 2 18 through the end of the chapter, 25. Man needs a helpmate to complete him. It is not good that man is alone. And I, you know, I again, I'm just going to share you my perspective. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that my 48 plus years with Peggy have been easy. They're not. The first several years of our marriage were really, really hard. As a matter of fact, and if she were here, we used to do this in our marriage seminars. We were this close to getting a divorce. Papers had been filed. And that was before you came to the Lord. That's before I came to the Lord. Before, like, four years. Exactly. And it was in 1972 that the Lord really got a hold of me. And that, and that was a lot in that, but that changed me. And then it was at that time that Peggy came to Christ. And so what we did is we were in some counseling then with our pastor and so on. And he was very wise. It was a really wise statement. He said to you guys have got to start over. You've got to put those years behind you and you have to start over. And so we did that. 
73, we started rebuilding our marriage. And it was, as Jim correctly said, my Mel, my pastor, who was my mentor in so many ways, at those in those years, he just he kept helping me to see what it means to love and serve Peggy. What that means, because you know, in order for loving and serving to to work, there has to be trust too, and there has to be a a a trust that is is solid, you know, in both for the husband and the wife. So, and Jim's just, I mean, he's like, you guys are all right. This is really, God has given us men an impossible assignment if we're not willing to rely on him. I mean, if, you know, if you try to do this on your own, and that's why, you know, Tim failed constantly. You know, I'm using it as an example, but that's why there's so many marriages that are outside of Christ. They just don't make it. Because you're not drawing on the resources that God has provided. And it's and that's why when you see a marriage, when you see a marriage that's working like this, or reasonably close to working the way God wants it, don't you see something supernatural? And that's why a ma- the marriage as an institution is to be like a herald proclaiming Something about God. God created it. God established the role responsibilities. And this is how it's supposed to work. And it reflects how Jesus relates to his church and vice versa. So it's a a supernatural assignment that God gives to marriage as well. That's why, I mean, honestly, I mean this, guys. When I knew this was coming up, I, until... Monday morning of this week, I did not know how I was going to go through this with you guys. And I just decided to do it this way, and I hope it was all right, to not just look at those pass- that passage of, of, of uh, 3, 1 through 7, but to look at all the Scripture says about marriage and then how this just fits into it. It complements everything else it's said. And if you look at if you look at Galate, sorry, you look at Genesis 1, 24 and 25. After God creates Eve, what does he say? For this reason, for what reason? Because of what I just did in creating Eve as a complement to Adam. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father. That's not a term of geography. That's a term of now you have a conscious awareness that you are forming a new family unit. You may live in the same house. You may live on the same farm. But you you sever that relationship with mom and dad. So your mom and dad, you still love them, etc. But you're forming a new unit. And what does he say? Cleave or cling. The, the Hebrew word is, is, is a strong word like glue to your wife. You're forming something new. And then the verb tense changes. And for the rest of your lives, you will be in the process of becoming one. The one flesh union. And that one flesh union is not, it's not only sexual intercourse, although that is a part of it. But I hope you understand the spirit in which I'm saying this. 
in sexual intercourse, you are united, but then you're apart again. So when you are married, you bring all of your idiosyncrasies, all of your baggage, all of your male-femaleness, all of your differences together, so that when you come together, you're in the process of becoming one flesh, you are much stronger together than if you were apart. So you're in the process of becoming one. And a husband who has primary responsibilities for his family and for the finances of his family is an idiot if he doesn't bring his wife into this. I mean, when we were first married, I kept a checkbook. In the first three months of our marriage, we bounced twice. My wife was an accountant. She worked at a bank. And when we were in seminary, she was working the county office of the seminary while I was in school. You know, I'm stupid if I don't let Peggy. I mean, you ought to watch Peggy do the check. You know, every month you get the statement. If she doesn't balance to the penny, if she's a penny off, she'll spend all the time going through the statement to find out where the penny mistake is. And you know who makes most of the mistakes on that. <laughs> I'm, just, I mean, I'm being a little facetious here, but I'm an idiot if I don't let my wife keep up. I have no idea how much we have in the check, checking account. That's, Peggy does that extremely well. That's just that part, okay, you're just saying, what's the wise thing in our relationship? I'm responsible, but I'm an idiot if I don't draw on all her strengths and all her gifts and so on. Not to assign it to her, but just we work this. It's the best way to do this. What's the best way for us to do this part? And raising the kids. And, you know, you know, Jonathan was one thing. Joanna's another thing. And you, what works with him doesn't work with her. So you got to work and talk and think and plan and your goal is always to say exactly one step ahead of the children. You know, if, if you're behind them, that's bad. All right, now, I, I just noticed I'm out of time. The papers are shuffling. Bibles are closing. Body language is Ekman. Shut up. So we're going to stop. Next week, don't, don't lose this. Because I don't think I have any extra copies. I don't think there are any extra. So try not to, if there are any extra, could I have the extra? But in case somebody shows up. But I, I, I want to continue this discussion next week uh, and build on it just a little bit more. But we got the main thing done that I wanted to get done. So if you really do have any questions or anything, don't be afraid to email me. Every now and then, oh, I'll get an email. I don't get as many emails from this class as I do from my other classes. I don't know if you're afraid to email me. or But anyway, don't be afraid to do that. Yeah, you're, that's true. You ask more questions during the class. And, you know. <laughs> All right, let me pray here. We'll get, you know. Lord, thank you for, uh, well, Lord, is helping me to think through how I was going to approach this. Uh, and Monday when I was studying, you just, I think you wanted me to do it this way, to step back and kind of get the 100,000th foot view from Scripture of the whole totality of teaching. And I, I trust this was beneficial to these men and just giving them some more resources. And um, all of us um, face challenges like this. I don't. I actually don't even know if every man around the table is married or what the situation is. But uh, I do, would not want anything to be understood by the men as me being critical or in any way um, personalized. I don't have anything or anyone in mind. I wanted to present, Lord, uh, what you see as the ideal for marriage in, in the Word of God. In Ephesians 5.32, marriage that reflects how Christ loves his church and how the church loves Christ. 
And I, I want that to clear, and I hope what we were able to do was helpful and beneficial. And Lord willing, unless Jesus comes back, we're going to continue this next Wednesday. So I pray your blessing on each man. Help us to be the men of God that you want us to be, the men you want us to be, the husbands if we're married, and if we have children or grandchildren, the fathers or grandfathers you want us to be. Because, Lord, we do represent you, and we want to do that well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I will see you next week.